a little over <clears throat> 10 years ago, I spent most of a year on a long pilgrimage in India. And I was uh, traveling as the um, companion and attendant of a Theravada Buddhist monk uh, for that time. And a friend of mine shared this year, um, it was a bit more than a year altogether, uh, traveling with uh, through India. This was a friend who's um, been a Buddhist monk now for probably about 37 years. I think at that time he had completed 25 uh, of the reigns, uh, year-long periods, uh, how it's measured in this tradition. And um, he was the abbot of a monastery in California at that time. He's now the abbot at Amaravati, uh, so a monk in the Thai forest tradition. Venerable Ajahn Amaro, some of you may have heard of him or know him. And uh, he had never been to India, never been to any of the Buddhist sites, and I had traveled there quite a lot, and I'd known him for a long time. And uh, so we we spent that year traveling. And during the period called the rains, the rainy uh, season in that part of the world, uh, the Vasa, it's called, uh, <clears throat> the, the nuns and monks in, in this tradition uh, make a determination to stay in one place. They don't wander about uh, during that period of um, 12 weeks of three lunar months. And so for that uh, period in, in our pilgrimage year, we were staying uh, at a small uh, guest monastery, uh, Vihara, called uh, Guest House and Abiding, in uh, near a place called Savati. Sahet Mahet is the modern name of the village. And Savati is a place where the Buddha often spent uh, the rainy season. And uh, he delivered more teachings, more discourses in that place than in any other place. And so we were spending our time there. And um, the ancient city walls are still there from that time. And there's a a park, uh, quite a lovely park, uh, that is where... uh, the Jetavana, the Jetta's Grove, uh, that was a famous place where the Buddha spent a lot of time, and the the old foundations uh, of the some of the, the monks' quarters uh, are there still in the park. And we would walk over in the early morning. We would get up uh, when it was still dark, and uh, we would walk over to the Jetavana, to the Jetta's Grove, and. There was one one uh, foundation, brick foundation, that um, everyone said was that had been the Buddha's uh, kuti, his hut there, his his place, his abiding, and we would sit there, and uh, in the early morning as the sun was rising, and we were walking. It's a very rural part of India. Walking through the fields to get there had this very uh, timeless feeling, and then Ajahn had his spot and I had my spot and we'd spend our morning practicing there in, in the Jetavana. And often when we would be walking over in the early morning in, in these places that are, are um, on the pilgrimage route for uh, Buddhists in India, there are, um, from a lot of the different Buddhist countries, they have these uh, pilgrim rest houses. There's usually a monastery there and a place where pil- pilgrims can stay. And uh, we would often be hearing, they, they often play, do some chanting over loudspeakers and, and put it out, uh, sort of offer it out into the, into the world. And we would often hear chanting in the early morning there. And one of the chants I remember hearing a lot was uh, the Satipatthana Sutta. And so I thought I'd begin the talk this night by playing just a a few verses of uh, some chanting of this uh, teaching. And uh, it's not not the same as what we heard in India. This is from a Sri Lankan monk named uh, Venerable Omalpe Sobita Mahatera. But um, I'd like to just play a bit of it. I think sometimes it's nice to hear the teachings in the Pali, even though it's not our spoken language. And you can just let it wash over and through you for a few moments and maybe receive a kind of 
uh, energetic transmission from this. So it'll take me just a moment here. these times I'm just going to let that keep playing, (laughs) but uh, I guess it's not tonight. That uh, bit of chanting after the homage, the namotasa, the first words were ewangume sutang, thus have I heard, and these, uh, all of these teachings were preserved um, through repetition, and those words were probably originally Uh, from the Venerable Ananda, the Buddha's attendant and cousin, who was said to have had an extremely good memory. And 
remembered these teachings and when people asked him to, to say what it was, he would begin them, thus, thus I heard. And in this first part, the, the Buddha's uh, talking about this is the direct path, this practice in the Satipatthana, the four Satipatthanas, the direct path to the realization of Nibbana uh, for the uh, overcoming of sorrow, lamentation, and uh, freeing the mind and heart, basically. This word Satipatthana is uh, usually translated as foundation of mindfulness. Although uh, I was reading in one place where the, the great translator Bhikkhu Bodhi said that it should be uh, seen as a combination of, of two words, sati, which is the word for mindfulness, and upatana, which means uh, establishment. And so um, he suggested establishment of mindfulness as a better translation. And I, I think that actually there's a, a subtle but somewhat important distinction in that because uh, for me, this sense of establishing mindfulness to uh, um, give, gives the sense of a kind of dwelling or abiding or resting within this quality of mindful awareness. Um, and to me, this emphasizes the quality of uh, mindfulness of awareness over any particular object, um, that that's the key, and that it actually... Uh, what we need to learn in our practice can be learned from anything, any object of that arises in, in our experience. It's this quality of mindfulness. So this sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, it's highly, highly revered in the Theravada Buddhist world. And many people memorize it and it's chanted quite often. Um, it's the most complete set of meditation instructions that we find in the entire uh, collection of the Buddha's teachings. And in this teaching, the Buddha takes the entirety of our experience, all that we can experience in our mind, body, heart, everything. He doesn't leave anything out. And he, he kind of puts it into these four categories or um, four different ways that we can uh, look at experience for different aspects of experience, and um, and then gives gives instructions how to pay attention in these different ways. So the four categories are um, uh, the word kaya is the first one in Pali means body, materiality, vedana is feeling tone, chitta is the mind. And Dhamma is uh, the fourth one. Uh, often said mind objects, or you could say patterns of experiences, or I like to see it as a kind of a, a lens or a, a way that we look at experience in a certain way. And I remember when I first um, was hearing people talk about this teaching and starting to talk about these things, and I, I got kind of worried because it seemed like I was, it seemed like there was just going to be a lot to do. And since I'm basically pretty lazy, I got kind of concerned because I thought I was going to have to make my way through some tedious process um, and a long list of things. And, and maybe, you know, I like have to memorize something too. And um, yeah, I remember feeling kind of concerned. And um, But in actual practice, even though these instructions are quite, um, there's a lot there in each of the sections. Mostly in our practice, we aren't so much intentionally directing and our, our, our practice through these different um, uh, satipatthanas, these different um, arenas or frames of reference, Tan Jeff calls them. We, we, um, we find as we pay attention to our experience, that, that um, our focus flows naturally uh, and shifts naturally between them all. So I'll just give a, a quick example. We might be sitting in meditation, uh, mindful of sensations in the body. And at some point we become aware of uh, a real strong, uh, a hard feeling in, in part of the body. Um, and 
it becomes quite unpleasant. We, and we become aware that there's an unpleasant feeling tone. So there we've been with the body and with the feeling tone. That's the first two. And then we notice that there is resistance and aversion to that unpleasant feeling tone. Well, that's an aspect of mind, uh, the teaching on mindfulness of mind. One knows if uh, the mind is affected by uh, aversion or not. It's also in the fourth foundation as one of the hindrances, which is um, an aspect of that. So we can see, um, see it from that aspect as well. So right in that short sequence, which probably uh, some of you could say, well, I, I had that experience just today. <laughs> we would see that we actually were um, investigating aspects of all four of these satipatthanas and we weren't aware of it. So mostly we don't have to take it on too much as a doing. So try to spare you some of the worry that I certainly felt at times with some of this. And we can choose to highlight. We might highlight one or another one of these or some of them show up quite strongly at certain times, organically, naturally. And ultimately they all interweave and they all lead and open one to the other in a very natural way, as I was saying. And, and any one of these uh, areas of um, focus or ways of looking at our practice, um, they're all, they all include everything and they all have the potential to uh, be complete and lead us to fulfillment of the practice. Um, so tonight I want to spend a little time with the first establishment, mindfulness of body, kaya which has been the main um, the main focus in the instructions uh, for our practice so far, we've been mainly inclining towards um, a bit more of attention to the realm of, of the physical uh, body, really getting to know that. Of course, everything else, as you know, has come up, right? Because it will. This is the nature of things. And the Buddha praised um, mindfulness of the body quite highly in different places. I'll read just a few things. Uh, from one of the texts. In one place he said, even as one who encompasses with their mind the mighty ocean includes thereby all the rivulets that run into the ocean, just so, O bhikkhus, whoever develops and cultivates mindfulness directed to the body includes thereby all the wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge. And in another place, One thing, O bhikkhus, if developed and cultivated, leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. And one thing, O bhikkhus, if developed and cultivated, leads to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and liberation. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. And then there's this very famous... uh, Uh, often quoted uh, thing that he said once in another place. Within this very fathom-long body, with its perceptions and inner sense, lies the world, the cause of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path that leads to the cessation of the world. So this is uh, maybe slightly different language than we may have heard, but it's basically him. He says, within this body, this is the, the Four Noble Truths, the key, the core teaching, the understanding of the nature of suffering, its cause, its cessation, the abandonment of the cause of it, and that path which uh, unfolds and leads to this uh, freedom from suffering. So quite, quite a lot of uh, strong praise there for bringing attention to the body. So I'll go quickly through um, a bit of the teaching there. In the interest of time, I can't get into too much detail, but it begins with mindfulness of breathing. And very simply, one knows one is breathing. One knows breathing an in-breath, one knows breathing an out-breath. And then one knows whether it's a long breath or a short breath. One breathes in, experiencing the whole body. One breathes out, experiencing the whole body. And one uh, then uses the breath as a vehicle for actually cultivating the quality of calm. Breathing in, calming the bodily formation. Bringing out, breathing out, calming the bodily formation. Then he talks about uh, bringing mindfulness to the various postures, which we've talked about in the instructions. So one is mindful whether walking, standing, 
sitting or lying down, and I, I add a fifth one there in between any one of those. Then different activities. So mindfulness brought uh, to when we're going forward, returning, looking ahead, looking away or behind, flexing and extending the limbs, wearing clothes, carrying things, eating, drinking, tasting, defecating, urinating, standing, sitting, going to sleep, waking up, talking, and remaining silent. A reflection on the various anatomical parts of the body. And in, at this time, uh, they were they was said there were 32 parts that were uh, traditionally used. And it begins with a hair of the head and hair of the body and teeth and nails and so forth. And one contemplates this aspect of the body. It's made up of these different parts. And then what are called the four great elements, the dattus in Pali, of earth, air, fire, and water. One contemplates this nature of material form. One contemplates the body in terms of its nature to decay, comparing one's own body with a decaying corpse, seeing that this is the the nature of things, where our bodies are subject to this after death as well. And it's said there was a practice of, of sitting in a, charnel grounds, those were where um, those were too poor to be cremated, the bodies were, were put and to actually sit there with decaying corpses. Not, not something we do so much um, here at uh, IMS. <laughs> but someone once sent me this incredible time-lapse video of an animal corpse uh, going through the process of decay and it was very sped up. And it went from a recognizable form of a body through all these incredible changes, um, eventually becoming earth and in this video, a plant sprouting up through it. Um, It all is condensed down to about one or two minutes. It was quite fantastic to see um, this, this natural process. And so one contemplates one's own body in terms of this. And, and at the very end of the sutta, it said one uh, establishes mindfulness uh, to the extent necessary to know just to know there is a body. So it can be that simple. That can be our fallback always. Oh, there is a body. We can know, know it as the, in that simple way. So I want to focus a bit on the, uh, this area of the elements because there's a way in which um, seeing the body in terms of this actually relates to a, a powerful shift in our meditation and, and uh, a, and a, uh, a way in which we are shifting into the realm uh, and the, um, you could say, the the arena of uh, real insight, true insight. So this description of the elements can sound almost kind of alchemical, or you know, kind of archaic, or or some outdated thing of earth, air, fire, and water. We don't we don't think about the body as being composed of these elements too much. It sounds like well some some old way that they thought about things back in the time of the Buddha. And, and I think for, the way, for this way of seeing, to make any sense at all, we have to shift um, to our direct experience of the bodily form. Because those words uh, may or may not have any meaning for us. You could say uh, we have to go to our experience of the body from within the body. So, so this is not just sort of a treatise on a philosophical thing. This is a practice uh, and something to look at in our direct experience of the body. And not only in terms of the body, but in terms of all materiality. So what we would see in the body, in terms of the elements, we see also in the world around us. It's the same. So the four elements, earth, it's patavidatu in Pali. It has the manifestation or characteristic of solidity, of hardness, and the range from hardness to softness, textures from roughness to smoothness. The air or the wind element has movement, pressure, tension, vibration. And you can think one way you can think of it uh, when and this we can feel in the movement of the abdomen with the breath, it's like blowing up a balloon and there's pressure and tension in that um, uh, sense of, of filling up a balloon with air and the movement of air through the wind just out in the world. 
the fire uh, element is, um, even though fire sounds on the hot end of things, it's the range of temperature from hot to cold and everything in between, all of the temperature. And then water uh, element has characteristics of fluidity and cohesion. So it's water like the rain that was falling or when we take a shower or we feel water, uh, sweat running on our face or, or our tears. And it also has this binding or cohering, cohesion uh, aspect. And you could think of this like when you take flour and mix uh, liquid with it to make a dough and it binds it together. Or you could think of, of a body. You know, these bodies are somewhere as adults 50 to 65% water. Infants, it's closer to 75%. We, we dry out. <laughs> Apparently we dry out. I found that interesting. Babies are much more watery, <laughs> closer to that place they came from. Maybe they grew up in a watery place uh, before they were born. But if you took all of the water out of a Greg like me, you'd have this pile of dry bits up here. And they would be loose and, and they wouldn't, you'd need water to bind them together to get one of these. You could just kind of blow them away, which Michelle seems quite interested in trying to get to happen. <laughs> But it would be interesting to remove the water, you know, and then I would just be like this pile of stuff and you could sweep me up and (laughs) toss me out. It would be kind of cool. And it will happen to us at some point. We will desiccate (laughs) one way or the other. So sometimes one or another of these things predominate and we can feel them like on a hot day, the fire element, the the warmth is very obvious or or coolness or... um, you know, we may, one of them may stand out, but they usually occur in combinations, not so much by themselves. And, and when we start to see our experience of body in terms of these elements, it takes us to um, really directly feeling um, what, what it is, uh, what the body is, um, below our ideas or pictures or concepts, um, our surface appearance, and, and our thoughts about it all. Because we tend to see these bodies as, as objects, as things, often to things to be manipulated to, to make them be um, better, <laughs> more what we want them to be like, some idea of that. And, and we have these words, body consciousness, and it focuses kind of on an external image, you know, and there's a lot of, of um, energy out in the world um, and a huge industry in terms of fashion and cosmetics and uh, all kinds of stuff that that gets part of this, of, of creating a body image that looks a certain way, tries to look a certain way. But what we're interested in a kind of body consciousness that is um, body from the inside out. You could say a subjective sense of the body from the inside. Now that's what we've been steering you to in, in the meditation instructions. Because this objectifying of the body as a thing, it often, um, it really disconnects us from the world and from ourselves, from others, from really our own sense of what it is to be alive, often. But awareness of the body from within the body in the long run ultimately has the, has the exact opposite effect. And, and so let's just do a quick bit of meditation here. You can stay sitting just as you are. You don't have to change your posture. Maybe, maybe let your eyes gently close. And just take one of your, um, with one of your arms and let your arm float up gently and turn and float back down. Not a lot, not a big movement, just slowly letting that rise and fall a little bit. It's rising up, falling down, moving down slowly. And now let that come to rest. Maybe bring your attention to your face and and into your mouth. You might notice some wetness there. Bring your lips together and kind of squeeze your lips for just a moment. And then let them come apart and you might feel some stickiness there. And you can just run your tongue along the, the bottom edge, the surface of your front teeth, the top or bottom. 
and tap your teeth together gently. Feel the hardness of that and the, the rough texture. You might let the attention come to the sensations of the breath at the nose or at the belly. Feel the movement, some pressure, tension. Maybe there's a coolness in some part of the body or warmth. I'm feeling a lot of warmth right now through the whole body. So you can let your eyes open. So in the first part of that um, little practice, in the moving of the arm and hand, we might hold an image of a hand and an arm, but, but our, our direct experience of that, what is that? There's movement, light touching sensations, maybe some tingling or a little bit of stretching or something. And there's the sensations of those different sensations in the body, in the mouth. And we can't really experience hand or arm, head or body in a certain way. Those are, are um, they're just words, they're just concepts. But our direct experience is all those different kinds of sensations that you all noticed there, whatever they may have been. That was our experience of body. That's our direct experience. And there's this sense of this, um, that in a way it's infused with its own kind of awareness. There's an awareness right there in the body, within the body. When we experience it from the inside. And then we start to see that in terms of this direct experiencing, what we call body is, is this process rather than something. <laughs> it's if you just right now feel your body sitting for just a second. It's this flow of changing sensations there. That's what we notice. That's what we can know as body. We can have a picture, an idea, and that's a picture or an idea. and that. Is a, is, is a thing, but that remains kind of static. But our actual experience of body is this flow of changing sensations. And so in meditation, we go to this level, below the level of concepts, all our ideas about ourselves, about the nature of reality. And this really has some profound, potentially profound consequences for us in terms of how it can impact our understanding and how we live and our life and um, the, the potential there is quite profound. The Tibetan teacher Kalu Rinpoche put, put this very simply. I think this is, these words are on a calligraphy here around the center somewhere. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So these words and this being nothing, you see that you're nothing, doesn't point to some disintegration or non-existence or annihilation, but it, it points to this uh, letting go of, of living in, in the, this, the illusion and appearance of things. Letting go of a, a false or wrong view that, that keep us bound to a limited and limiting perspective. Because so often we feel numb and disconnected, separate from other beings, from the world around us. And I think our modern life kind of, I don't know, it it conditions this in us in in ways. And often there's some quality of this this sense of disconnection that uh, can be a, a real genuine part of an aspect of the motivation that would bring us to to meditation, to what we might call a spiritual life. 
And, you know, we, t- we tend to speak about nature. You know, we look out the window and it's out there. And maybe we go out into it. I'm going to go out into nature. We speak about the environment in that way. It's separate as other than us. This leads to some big problems. And it's not true. This body, this mind, they are part of nature. They're aspects of the environment, of the landscape. We come from it. We are supported by it. We will return to it. And I think there's some way that some part of us, some deep part of us knows this and, and longs, for, um, longs for connection with that, longs to uh, return ourselves to nature in a way. This is a poem from D.H. Lawrence, part of a poem. I am part of the sun as my eye is part of me. That I am part of the earth, my feet know perfectly, and my blood is part of the sea. There is not any part of me that is alone and absolute except perhaps my mind. And we shall find that the mind has no existence by itself. It is only the glitter of the sun on the surfaces of the water. And this part where he says, I am, I'm part of the sun, you know, the astronomers, they love to study uh, novas and supernovas, these exploding stars. And I was reading about this. Um, and it takes that much energy to make anything heavier than a gas. <laughs> Apparently, if you want, you know, people and toasters and prairie dogs and Um, Alka-Seltzer, you have to have an exploding star to get stuff. So we're all made of stardust. (laughs) You know, the song says we are stardust, right? Joni Mitchell's old song. But it's true. It's actually true. You don't get any of us or any of these things like planets if you don't get a star to explode. Or actually you need a bunch of them probably over a long time. Some teacher, I, I'm not sure, I think this maybe is a paraphrase of something that Ajahn Buddha Dasa, a famous Thai teacher, once said. He said, what we are doing with this practice is giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. And um, I love this simple saying because for me this goes right to the heart of things. That's what we're doing here in some essential way. Because everything we can experience in this body and mind, in the world around us, is just an aspect of nature. It's natural process of unfolding according to natural law. And through our practice, I th- there's a way in which we begin to really uh, see this, know this, live this. And, and there's this way that this uh, inclines us to letting go of ownership. We, We mistakenly appropriated it, and we just give it back. And there's a great relaxation and a deep healing and and a putting down of a huge burden. And and so maybe in my thinking, this is something about um, this being nothing, then being everything that Kalu Rinpoche, we, we let it go. And then we're nothing and everything both. And so, yeah, that might sound kind of cool and sort of poetic and beautiful, and here we are on retreat, and we hear these lovely words. They may be inspiring in the moment, and then, you know, we get up in the morning, we look in the mirror, and boy, that's usually a mistake for me, first thing in the morning. <laughs> At this age, you know, my, not, only, not only what hair I've got left, but my whole face is kind of like a wave breaking to one side or something, and it's a tragic experience. Um, <laughs> For a little while, you know, and it seems to improve after I put a bunch of water on it and rub it a bit, <laughs> you know, but there we are. There I am. There's that head and that face and, you know, these parts and, you know, we, we just fall into, it's so easy to object, oh, there it is. You know, it's in the mirror, so it's out there in front of me somewhere. And, you know, we, that, that habit of seeing it as a thing and objectifying it. It's, it's so, um, and, then, and then separating it out, and, and boy, do we take them personally. 
You know, it's like if it doesn't look like it's supposed to, some idea of that. You know, we, we get so lost in all of our stuff about it, our thoughts and ideas, and we either use it to, boy, looking pretty good, bolster our ego, or, whoa, not looking so good, you know, and, and we beat ourselves up with it. So, you know, as though it's personal. And, you know, in saying all this, it, it's not to deny the reality of, of our conventional world. And, you know, the, I have a body, you have a body, I can see them all out there, and we need to feed them and wash them and, and all that stuff endlessly, endlessly <laughs> over and over. A lot of work sometimes. But is this the only truth, you know? Is this uh, experience of the body as this flow of changing sensations that we would be our experience in meditation, is that somehow less real than this thing we see when we look into the mirror and have this whatever relationship we have with that? Can we see that both of these are equally real in a certain way? And when we move from seeing the body as an object, as a kind of fixed thing, and come into this direct experience of body as a dynamic uh, process, as a shifting flow of sensations, there's an important and I think critical shift in our meditation practice that happens. Because if we stay on the level of concepts, of pictures and ideas, as I was saying before, those those. Those are just stay fixed. They're static. They don't, they don't, um, they don't change. But our direct experience of body, if we really look at that, all we see is change. All it's doing is changing. This dance of this elemental nature, this flow of hardness and softness, of movement, of vibration, of heat and cold, of flowing and gathering and uh, cohering. This, this flux and flow in, of that change, it's like a dance that's happening, ongoing. You can feel it right now. If we look closely, all we see is change. And so this takes us below the surface of things to, to um, kind of, what well, you could say, more essential or fundamental realities this quality of change. This is, holds true for all things, everything, all the time. And so we see what we have held and related to as this solid, fixed thing. It's not solid at all when we draw close and investigate it in terms of the elements, this manifestation of physicality, of materiality. We'll see it's, it's just changing, it's arising and passing, and sometimes we start to see it's changing really fast faster than we can believe. And we see it's, it's happening by itself. We're not doing it. It's just doing it. Because it's just its nature. <laughs> We're not doing that. And there's no thing in there that's, that's reliable. What pleasant feeling in the body? They're great. We get them once in a while. But they don't last, do they? They're not reliable. We can't, we can't have them be our source of satisfaction because they change to unpleasant. And, and it's all causal. It's this flow of causes and conditions. We're not in control of it. There's no solid core there. We can't determine, let it be like this. Let it be like that. Let it not age. Let it always be comfortable. Boy, if there's one thing we learn in meditation, it's that these bodies are inherently kind of uncomfortable things to live in, at least at a certain point. And we, we relate to that like it's our fault and it's some kind of mistake. Like, you know, if we had our act together, that wouldn't be true. But it's just, you know, they, they have the range. Sometimes it's comfortable, sometimes it ain't. We're not in control of it. And so we start to see it's just nature expressing itself and we can let it go. We don't have to own it all. We can give it back to nature. Because we see that this body in that manifestation, that's no different than 
than what's happening all around us in the world. It's the same elements. You know, how can we claim ownership? Is, is hardness, how do we take that personally, our heat? This is my heat, my hardness, my rough texture, my vibration. It doesn't, doesn't make sense. We, don't, we wouldn't tend to claim that in that personal way. We see, oh, well, that's, we, we see it internally and externally. Hardness, <coughs> softness, these things, that's, they're the same in the body. They're the same in the world around us. Same for all material things. Which part of that is me defines who I am. Exploring this reveals a lot about the relationship of materiality and mentality. Just say a few things about this. You know, the mind knows, but it does not have form. The body has form, but it doesn't know. And so these two come together in our experience. We see their relationship. Mentality, the mind, knowing materiality, the body. Materiality, contact, sensation in the body. That conditions the arising of body consciousness, you could say, of the mind that knows that. Consciousness is not just waiting around. It arises with contact. That's the same. When there's contact at the eyes, seeing consciousness arises. Contact at the ears, hearing consciousness it arises. You see, this is a, um, these uh, condition one another. In all kinds of ways. There's, it's interesting, we can see how uh, the quality of the mind affects the body, conditions that. If anger or shame become really strong in the mind, there may be heat, often heat, or, or some kind of tension or contraction. We see the body respond, emotional states, and the body uh, reflects those, responds to those. Maybe um, the mind is in a very calm, cooled out, equanimous state, concentrated state perhaps, and the body feels relaxed and open and at ease. You might find a quality of joy arising, kind of joyful interest, and, and will feel lightness or pleasant tingling sensations in the body in response to that. All these different ways that the mind conditions uh, the physicality, uh, the body, materiality. And then uh, in the other way, we'll feel a lot of heat in the body, sitting here in the hall perhaps, and we'll, we'll notice uh, the response in the mind. You know, maybe there's aversion to that feeling. And then all kinds of thoughts, you know, well, they should do something about it. They should fix that. Or maybe we're sitting for a while and, and this feeling of hardness, earth element gets really strong. <laughs> you all have noticed that at least once today, probably. At some point, if you sit long enough, the earth element becomes excessive in the nether regions, in the butt or in the feet, and, and we see, you know, how that affects the mind. There can be resistance or aversion, response to that conditions the mind. It's just this, this, um, this flow of causation, you could say. It's just nature, it's just the nature of things. And so there's a way I think that this exploration leads us to seeing that um, we can use this foundation of mindfulness of the body, the first foundation, first establishment of mindfulness. It's, it's really rich. It can lead us to, um, really the whole path can flow from that. We can see everything in terms of mind, body, heart through that uh, exploration we start to open to a, a kind of awareness uh, and an understanding that's, that's already present within the body, I think, in a way. And we start to see very clearly that our practice is not about, we're not trying to create something, get something we don't have, and we're not trying to go somewhere other than where we are. It's not what we're doing. 
Everything we need is right here within this fathom-long body. Because all we're doing with the practice is exploring the nature of things. We're just exploring nature. We do it within our own body, our own mind and heart. We do it when we go and move about in the world. It's all just nature. And all we're doing is uh, exploring the essential, fundamental qualities in that. We're getting to understand uh, the essence of, of that. So we're just really observing nature in our practice. That's all we're doing. So we're complete right now. We don't need anything we don't have in order to uh, really plumb the depths of what's possible and free the mind and heart. So I'm going to end tonight with um, uh, three short verses, part of a poem that's from a collection called the Teragatta, which is... um, means verses of the elders, or in this case, male elders. And these are uh, a collection of, kind of verses and poems that were written by um, some of the Buddha's uh, followers. There's a Teragata and there's a Terigata, which is poems of the nuns. Um, I may read some of the nuns' poems um, because I love them so much. But this one is uh, actually attributed to the Buddha's attendant um, and cousin, who I mentioned earlier, uh, the Venerable Ananda. And this uh, was written after the Buddha had, had passed away. Um, Ananda outlived him, and uh, as well, the Buddha's two chief disciples, uh, Venerable Sariputta, Venerable Mahamogalana, and, and a number of others had, um, had uh, passed away. And Ananda is, um, is kind of a poignant and a bit sad. <laughs> Sorry about that. But it's a poignant appreciation here of mindfulness of the body. And so this is Ananda after a lot of his, um, after the Buddha and many of his companions have passed away. All the directions are obscure. The teachings are not clear to me. With our benevolent friend gone, it seems as if all is darkness. For one whose friend has passed away, one whose teacher is gone for good, there is no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. The old ones have all passed away, and I do not fit in so well with the new. And so today I muse alone, like a bird who has gone to roost. So we can just keep sitting quietly for another couple of moments. I'll let these words drift away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.